Hi there, my name's Ushin Lunny and welcome to Audio Talks presented to you by Harman. And in this episode, we are recording live in Groningen in the Netherlands at Eurosonic Nordeslag or ESNS, where Jukebox CEO Scott Cohen has just delivered a stunning keynote speech. You say you want a revolution. Now, Scott's music business career has certainly been revolutionary. As the co-founder of The Orchard, he set the pace for the digital music distribution revolution and as chief innovation officer for Warner Music, he transformed many of the label's initiatives and created some incredible new opportunities with technology. Scott is returning to Audio Talks to tell us all about his new company, Jukebox, and why this is the revolution that the music industry needs. Welcome back, Scott. It's great to see you. Oh, it's always great to be here with you. <laughs> we, were, you. We, we were here in Groningen oh, yeah. four years ago, and I gave my keynote four years ago in the exact same room. I did today, and you were sitting in the exact same seat you were four years ago. It's as if nothing changed, we, <laughs> other than there was a little global pandemic. <laughs> nothing changed. Fantastic. Yeah, it was a nice sense of deja vu there. Now, in the key, keynote speech of four years ago, you spoke about a lot of the stuff that has subsequently happened in the industry. You were talking about blockchain, talking about NFTs, talking about stuff that you know has since come to huge prominence. And, um, you know, you did some amazing predictions today as well, but you also spoke about the state of the music industry and this idea that there's a kind of mindset there um, that needs to change. Now, your, your keynote was refreshingly candid, as always, uh, yeah. may I say. But, like, um, I'd just like to start our chat by uh, asking you to talk a bit about this, you know, how we look at the music industry and the music business and, you know, what in our mindset needs to change. Yeah, I mean... There, there, there's a crazy narrative out there that I just don't buy into. And, and, I, and I think a lot of people don't believe either, but maybe they're too scared to be, I don't know, as candid as I am. Right. Um, I'm going to try and speak as freely as possible without getting bleeped as well, <laughs> um, which, which is my biggest challenge. Um, <laughs> But I heard you had Sammy Andrews on, so. Oh, yeah, the great yeah. Sammy Andrews. I that love was, Sammy. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I, I hear a lot of complaining about, you know, what's the problem in the music business. And yeah. often they're blaming the major labels or they're blaming Spotify because they don't pay any money. Everybody's getting blamed. They're blaming the live music industry, Ticketmaster. Everybody's getting blamed um, for everything. And I just don't think it's right. Mm. I think there's three things that we should look at. One is the music. Second is the music business. And third is the music industry. And they are not the same thing. Mm. Like music is music. It's art. It's music. We all know what music is. And guess what? Anyone can make music. Anyone. Like there was a time when you even had to learn how to play an instrument. Now there's AI powered instruments that you don't even have to know how to play an instrument and you can make music. So truly anyone can make music and the cost of making music is exactly zero. Yeah. Um, so that's not a problem. Then there's the music business. Like how do I make money from doing it? And again, there's a million tools, whether it's online or offline, people can go make money good luck to you. But it's also very different than the music industry. The music business is not the music industry. The music industry is a popularity contest. Yeah. And it's dominated by the major labels. Um, the major labels have had every hit 
in this century. Every global superstar, I'll put it that way, not hits, but every global superstar has been on the major labels or through the major label system, even if it was through one of the distribution companies that they own. 100% of them, not 90%, not 99%, but 100% of the global superstars. So that is a business around popularity. And guess what? It's always been that way. So all this complaining about Spotify and the rest or the major labels, the truth of the matter is it didn't matter if it was Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Michael Jackson, Madonna, Beyonce, Ed Sheeran, Snoop Dogg. It doesn't matter what your genre is. It doesn't matter what era you were. It doesn't matter the format that your music was released. It doesn't matter the platform that you were promoted on. Every year in the music industry, there's superstars, and those superstars make money, a mm. lot of money, and they're wildly popular. And then everyone else complains. <laughs> so most of the complaining is done by artists that were never successful. So they go, my music doesn't pay me enough from streaming. Well, you're not popular enough. Maybe you have a million streams, and you think that's a lot? That is not a lot. The new standard is a billion streams, and a billion is a thousand times more than a million. It's a lot more. And if you can't get a billion streams, then don't expect to make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, that is the situation. So it's artists that have never had success. And then you also get the artists that used to be successful. I'm sorry, people just might not be interested in the new music that they're making today. They loved your albums in the 70s or the 80s, and they still listen to them. But when you put out music today, they may not be that interested. It's not the fault of anyone else. It's not the record labels. It's not streaming. It's not the web. It's none of that. Just face the facts that there comes a time when artists move from being relevant pop artists and then they become heritage acts. This happens in every era. Yeah. And so... I guess I'm just tired of the complaining. <laughs> I'm just tired that, that if you want to be in the music industry, excellent. It means about superstars and very few will make it to that level. Yeah. Very few. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Some real talk is always there, Scott. Sorry, I, I don't mean to rant, but, <laughs> but I can keep ranting. I mean, and you can edit this out and no one will ever hear my rant. But, but it's like, it's like, I mean, this winter I, 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 I went skiing right? And I paid a lot of money to go skiing. You have to, you have to get all the skis and the boots and, and you have to, and, and a ski pass. Mm -hmm. And, and you have to, I, me, I had to get an instructor and, uh, and, and, you know, you have to get there and you have to pay for flights and accommodation. It is not cheap to ski. Yeah. But I don't ski and go, well, if I'm going to ski, I should get paid for it because those other people get paid for it. <laughs> Well, if I was as good as that and I could make the U.S. ski team, then maybe I'd get some endorsements and make some money. You know, people play football and they kick a ball around and they go, am I good enough to play for Man United or, mm -hmm. or Barcelona? If not, I don't deserve to get millions of dollars. Like, there's a reality check in sports, but there seems to be no reality check, no introspection if you make music. There's this belief that just because you made it, you should make a living. And if you're not, then there's a problem with the system. It can never be a problem with you.
it's refreshingly candid. It's some real talk that people do need to hear. It, it's something that doesn't come up too often uh, at events and in conversations and that kind of thing. Um, but I really enjoyed an interview you did recently with the great Jordi Puy oh, over I in Unison. Jordy. Oh, awesome. I love Jordi. Yeah, our, our amigo Jordi. And um, he mentioned that your new company, Jukebox, actually stopped you from going into retirement, which I'm very, very glad to hear. But it must have been a powerful idea. Can you give us the Jukebox elevator pitch? How does it fit into this world that you're describing now? I keep thinking I'm going into retirement. I mean, <laughs> if you can't hear by from, from my voice, I'm not a kid anymore. Um, I've been in the music business over 30 years. So I keep thinking I'm, I'm retiring. And this time I was really certain that my my gig at Warner Music, I was I w- was definitely going to be my last one. <laughs> like, that's it. I, I, I'm out. Yeah. But I got really intrigued by the possibility of where the future growth of music had come from and how we could transform the music industry without cannibalizing what already exists. So the notion is is really simple. Um, Regular people, just the general population, they can buy shares in, I don't know, Apple or Uber or IBM or Microsoft but they can't buy shares of their favorite songs. Like they could buy shares in Warner Music or yeah. Sony or Universal, yeah. but not the songs on there. You know, it's an asset class that's been around for well over a hundred years. Since the, since the, you know, I was going to say the invention, since, <laughs> since the beginning of copyright law that yes. said you have a right to that, then created a market around music rights. So this market is not a new thing. It's an asset class that's existed for a very long time. Yeah. The problem that I recognized was this asset class is restricted to a very small number of players. The asset class, if you want to buy music rights, you have to be one of the three multinational corporations or a dozen or so uh, private equity firms. Mm-hmm. Like recently there was an announcement where Justin Bieber sold his catalog for $200 million, but no one else had an opportunity to buy a share in that. Yeah. Only a large corporation could. Mm-hmm. And so if we can buy shares in those corporations, couldn't we open up that asset class and unlock that value and bring it to retail investors, as in the general public, as a retail investor, as opposed to an institutional investor, a professional. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is really exciting because it's it's not a, a new idea completely. As you said in your keynote at ESNS, uh, you had a great picture of David Bowie, you spoke about the Bowie bonds. Um, can you take us through the differences between, you know, some of these early experiments with um, asset-backed securities and what you're going to do at Jukebox? In 1997, David Bowie with Prudential did this Bowie bond, a David Bowie bond. It was an asset-backed security, and the asset that was backing it was his royalties. The royalties from all his previous albums was going to back that security. Um, and it was a brilliant idea way ahead of his time, mm-hmm. as always with David Bowie, yeah. way ahead of his time. Um, this is similar. <laughs> I mean, 
but it's but it's not the same. I mean, yeah. first of all, those bonds were not available to retail investors. It yeah. was on, it wasn't open to the public like anyone could buy a share of the of a Bowie bond. Mm. But it did hint at what is possible that music is actually a very stable asset class that you know, if you think about uh, the decay curve of music, um, a song comes out and if it's a hit, it goes way up. You can, you, and it earns a lot of money. And then over a short period of time, that starts to drop off. Within 10 years, it levels. So if you can imagine a chart, it spikes when it's released and when it's a hit, drops down to the whatever level it's going to be. That level's not zero. It just drops down to a new level. Yeah. And then from there, it's stable and actually starts to grow organically 6 8% a year, year in and year out. So mm. think about, you know, Fleetwood Mac rumors, yeah. you know? It was massive in the 70s, and then it trailed off. But if you look at the earnings year over year, decade over decade, it just keeps earning. And that's how it is with all the hit songs. So it's a really stable asset class. It's just never been open to fans. Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. And um, so you're kind of unlocking this for the public. But, you know, what does this mean for, you know, the musicians and the creators? In, in your keynote, you spoke about the music industry losing its way a bit in terms of artist remuneration. You know, you're refreshingly candid, as always. Um, what's your approach at Jukebox? Why is it different? So imagine that. We're now allowing anybody to buy a share of, of all of these hit songs or these hit artists that, you, that everyone would know these names, household names. Um, but the reality is those artists have sold their rights. Yes. That's, that's why we're able to list them. The whole notion of it is their rights belong to a publisher and a record company. There's two large rights, publishing and master recordings, without getting into the <laughs> details of what those rights are. Um, but they're sold. Yeah. So when somebody's trading stock, so it's whether it's IPOing it, the initial offering of that stock to the public, or the secondary market where now people are trading it on a daily basis, there is no royalty obligation to anyone in that system. There's also no contractual obligation to pay anyone. Mm -hmm. I mean, there just isn't. However, I think the right thing to do is to pay those creators. So what we're doing at Jukebox is creating a very large fund to say as money is generated from the primary offering and then the secondary trading, we're creating a large pool and we will use that pool of money to pay back to the songwriters and the recording artists. Um, because they should get it. I mean, it's not because there's any law that says they should. There's not any contract that says they should, but I wouldn't feel right if we weren't. It, it's like if, if, if you were a starving artist and you did an oil painting and you sold it for a hundred dollars, a hundred euros, just enough to, you know, go contribute to your rent. And then 10 years later, you look and it's on auction for a million and you're like, oh my God, how yeah. much do I get from that? Oh, nothing. Mm. You already sold it. Yeah. So with us, we're saying these rights have been sold. They've been sold, some of them more recently, like a Justin Bieber, but some of them decades ago. 
And some of them, they've never owned the rights because the moment they signed their contract, it was assigning their rights over. Yeah. So this, I think, is the right thing to do. And it doesn't take away from anybody other than from us, I guess. Our, but I don't yes. think of it as taking away. I think it's it's super important to share the wealth. Yeah. I think yeah. We're, we're in a world where um, there's a great imbalance. Uh, again, I'm not... a, a I'm, I'm not against anyone getting rich. Yeah. Uh, I just think that it's, that what I've seen recently is that this decoupling of, of the, 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 the wealth that's being created for people and the value that they're creating, mm. that, that, that they're just, the rich keep getting richer and just running away from it. And I'm saying, hold on, you know, let's, you can still get rich, but let's make sure we're taking care of everyone else. Yeah. So in our scenario, not only do we take care of the creators, which is the songwriters and the recording artists, but we're also to those to those rights holders that are listing them on the market, they will also continue to get compensated because I want them to have skin in the game and still actively work those those catalogs and those rights. And then ultimately the retail investor wins, the fan, because now they have access to an asset class they never had. Yeah. I mean, it seems like this is unlocking so much value at different places in the industry. Before we dive a bit more into that, you know, talk to us a bit about this potential of, you know, the fan revolution. In your keynote four years ago at ESNS, you spoke about the BTS army and how they've really revolutionized, you know, what it means to be a fan. What do you think, like, the army and Swifties would do with jukebox? Oh, my God. <laughs> if a BTS fan... Yeah. A BTS Army or a Taylor Swift fan, the Swifties, or a Justin Bieber fan, the Beliebers. Yes. If if any one of these fan bases could have access, I mean, this is incredible. In Web One, it was you know the read-only web where you just consumed like you did in the offline world. Mm. Web Two, and this is just these are just concepts, not technologies. Yeah. And Web Two was the read-write web where. I just didn't consume. I could also publish myself. So think of like social media. So I'm not just reading everyone else's feed from superstars. I'm also posting my own photos and videos and comments. That's the read-write web. Web three is the read-write-own web. And that ownership is about things like owning your own data, being in control for the first time ever because those other companies owned everything. Now you get to own. But in this definition, I expanded to, you can also own the very things you consume. So I might be online listening to Spotify. I might go to a gig. So I'm a consumer. I might buy some merchandise from an artist, but I'm also a shareholder. I also own stock in the hit songs. Wow. I mean, talk about having skin in the game. I mean, that could be completely transformational. I know yeah. those fans really want to have that access and that closeness to the act. Yeah, because because what's happened, and I, I was talking to Mark Mulligan about it yesterday, and I sadly missed his keynote, um, and he's a brilliant guy from Media Research. Agreed. You know, he was talking about what's happened with music recently is that it's become background music. Mm. Now, the beauty of music is traditionally, it's been the only media you can consume while you're doing other things, and that was its power. So I could go to the gym and work out and listen to music. I couldn't watch, you know, a film in the cinema, but I could go to the gym and listen to music. I could work and have music playing. I could do lots of things while music was playing. And that was the, the kind of extra benefit of music. What's happened more recently is it's become 
that is the main use of music, mm. not the extra benefit. Because when I was a kid, it was all about buying an album and going deep and reading the liner notes and putting on headphones and just listening to the song over and over and over. There's a new generation that doesn't know who the artist is. They have no clue. They know the song, but they don't know any more. And so what this could possibly do by having skin in the game, as you said, by having a, a vested interest could start to bring people back deeper into the artist again to say, I, you know, I don't just listen to their songs. I have a piece of that and I want to know who the artist is and what, uh, what's the context behind their, their music and their art and just get a little deeper. It may or may not happen, but that's my hope that it'll bring people closer to the artists again, that it'll take some segment of what was background music and bring it to the foreground again. Yeah. Well, talk about in being invested in the music. That is absolutely incredible. That, that could really transform a lot of things, particularly for those acts with huge fan bases. Now, in order for Jukebox to work, you know, you're talking about generating new revenue. Um, traditionally, you know, new digital platforms, you know, streaming downloads have sort of replaced what has been tailed off in the previous iteration. Um, how does Jukebox fit into this in terms of, does it cannibalize anything or is it new? Yeah, they, when, you, when you look at the history of the music business, all the growth or most of the growth has come from cannibalization or yeah. substitution, meaning, you know, streaming cannibalized downloads, downloads yeah. cannibalized CDs, CDs cannibalized cassettes, cassettes cannibalized vinyl albums, albums cannibalized singles. Like this is the history and we've grown through that. But, but when you look in the rear view mirror, mirror it's like, holy shit, <laughs> it, it, what, it's, it, what, what have we lost? Yeah. In, in this situation, this is completely additive. It's not substitutional. Wow. So Spotify stays the same, Apple Music, Amazon, the major label system, the independent system, the DIY artist system, TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, anything related to music stays the same. Yeah. This is on top. Wow. This is new money that never existed on top. This sounds like the ultimate growth hack for the music industry and all of the players within it. Is it it's the only reason I decided not to retire. <laughs> I, I wasn't interested in doing something little. I was interested in doing something transformational. Yeah. And I also wasn't interested in doing anything disruptive. I didn't yeah. feel like I wanted to, to knock out the existing players. I, I love the music industry. I've been in it, you know, 30 years plus. Yeah. So I didn't want to be disruptive. I wanted to, to be additive and yeah. transformational. So that's why I got into it. I think this is, by the way, inevitable. Uh, whether I succeed and Jukebox succeeds, I don't know. Of course, I hope we do. But if it's not us, it'll be somebody. This is what the music industry is moving towards, opening it up to the public. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I'll, I'll go a step further that what I'm saying are great ideas, but I've also done stuff. <laughs> so, so... The, well, I'm not just talking about theoretical things. So already I've licensed over $1.7 billion worth of catalog. So that, that amount of catalog already is enough to run a, a market. Yeah. Inside there, I'm not going to name the names yet because we're still <laughs> haven't revealed it, but yeah. superstar artists, superstar songs from hits of today, 
classic stuff from the 70s, 80s, I don't know, from every decade. Um, there, there's just amazing stuff in this catalog. My hope is that in the next few months, I continue to bring stuff in. And when we launch, we'll have somewhere in the neighborhood of four to $5 billion uh, of rights that we can deploy. And we wouldn't need to deploy all of it at once, but it's what we would have so that anything you could imagine would be there. That, 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 that's one piece of it. The other piece is that, is that I believe that these are securities like any other stock, trading Apple, trading Uber, trading Microsoft. These are securities. I believe trading and music rights are securities and should be regulated. In America, that means regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC. Mm. Um, by the way, I don't just believe it. They also believe it. They believe that these are securities. <laughs> There's some people that have been selling royalties online and they'll definitely be under investigation. Indeed. Yeah, that that kind of, uh, that movement towards a more regulated market can only be a good thing and it's, it is I've, coming, yeah. Yeah, because you need to have confidence that if you're buying something, it's real, it's, it, it's attached to a real asset, which yeah. this is, and that you can do something with it. If, if you don't want it anymore, you can sell it. You know, for all those people that bought those NFTs, yeah, I don't know. They should have been, you know, they, they, they complained about regulation, but I think regulation would have helped the, those markets because anyone that's ever bought an NFT, good luck selling it. There yeah. is no confidence. And some people bought them and it's like, oh, the market disappeared. FTX yeah. doesn't exist. Yes. Well, where's my NFT? Oof, gone. Yeah. Yeah, there was some like shocking statistic recently that, uh, what was it, 80% of trades of NFTs in January were wash trades, like people just, you know, inflating the price by selling them back and forth. But to, to themselves. To them, exactly, yeah, to themselves yeah. and fake accounts because there isn't that. Because there's uh, no marketplace for it. Yes. And it's partly, partly because it's unregulated. Yeah. Partly because it's not linked to anything real. Yes. No offense, I'm a big <laughs> believer in blockchain and yeah. NFTs, yeah. but these are not the right use cases so it, far. 100%. The elephant in many rooms is that, you know, people saying, well, this is, of course, of course, it's going to the moon and back. But, you know, what, what's it based on? What's it connected to? Yeah. But talk to us a bit about the, the tech under the hood. I mean, I, I understand from your keynote, it's going to be very user-friendly. The technology is not something that people will need to know about, but what should yeah, they know I, about the tech? All right, keeping on the theme of kind of blockchain and NFTs, yeah. You know, the, one of the big problems is that the technology was too much in front. Mm. It was lead with the technology. The fact yeah. that you said you were buying an NFT is, huh? That, and <laughs> no, what are you buying? You know, like, like I don't know if it, 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 there's lots of things I buy, but I don't look at the material. Like you've bought 30% polyester, 4% cotton. Like, no, but what did I buy? I don't know the, the materials it's made of. I want yeah. to know what it is. Yeah. And so they were leading with the technology, which mm -hmm. I think is always a problem. Yeah. There, there was a time not so long ago that if you wanted to, to go anywhere on the web, you had to type in letter by letter, HTTP colon backslash backslash www dot spell out exactly the name of the URL and hope it was .com, not .net, not .org, and get it right. And if you mixed up any part of that error, start mm. again. Yeah. And it had to retype everything. Now, 
I pull out my phone. If I want food, if I want car, if I want music, I push a button. Yeah. I have no idea what the technology is, <laughs> what, 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 what language they programmed it in. What, yeah. it, it's irrelevant. And that's the world we need to get into with blockchain. And this is the things we're going to be doing at Jukebox. Like there will be elements on the blockchain and nobody will know. That's how we know we did it right. If you can see it, feel it, understand it, then we did it wrong. Like nobody should ever have to create a crypto wallet. Oh my God. <laughs> and if you ever have, then you know the pain. And yeah. if you haven't, well, you should probably try and feel a little pain so you understand what it's all about. Yeah. But you should be able to open an account, not create a crypto wallet. You know, why should you have to know what a crypto wallet is? Why should you have to know what a coin is or a token? Or is there a difference between a coin and a token? And if so, what is the difference between a coin and a token? That's irrelevant. What you should do is be able to have an account and instead of a token, maybe you have points. Like I have an airline account, you know, for frequent flyer miles. They don't give me tokens. They get, I open an account, I do some stuff, I get some points and I can do things with those points. That sounds more like it. If the technology underpinning that happens to be blockchain and there's NFTs, great. But you don't have to know that. Fantastic. That's music to my ears. As somebody who struggles a little bit with that kind of tech, um, that is very, very welcome. And it's not just new technology you're looking at. You're also looking at new ways that companies can exist in these, you know, very connected years. Talk to us a bit about the kind of uh, you know, the, the macro trends that Jukebox is also embracing and how that applies to your company. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting because we're not just embracing a new, you know, model for the music business and making money and asset class and, and technology. We're embracing everything that's happening, starting with things like remote working. Yeah. Like who today would start an office you know, a new company and open an office. Yeah. Sorry if I'm offending anyone. <laughs> but what we said was the money that we're not going to pay to an office, you know, mm. to have an office and all the costs that come with it. How about we, we, we funnel that down to our people Yeah. so that if they, regardless of their situation, maybe they're younger and they're in an apartment. So we'll pay you a little more so that you can get a, an apartment with an extra room. Maybe you don't have to have a roommate this time. Or if you're a little older and you have a house and you're going to work from home, maybe you need some daycare. So let's push the money back there because I've never heard anyone say, God, I love commuting to work. It's amazing. That's the thing I miss. When COVID was over, God, I missed commuting every day. Yeah. Like we can do things um, in a virtual place. And again, it's hard to explain to people that don't work properly virtual because mm. that's the thing you have to you have to know what are the right tools for collaboration what are the right things to do um virtually because there's a lot of you know it's figma boards and and notion and you know obviously all the zoom type technologies um i, I i've staffed an entire company now with people i've never met in person um we work together but we had to recreate certain parts of the office online. We didn't recreate commuting. <laughs> we wanted to say, what are the best parts of working together in, yeah. in an office and how do we deliver that to people? You know, think about it another way. So think about something like Facebook. Facebook didn't try and recreate friendship. 
what they try to do is recreate some of the emotions you get from friendship. So belonging and community and some outrage and some <laughs> gossip. You know, these are all things that are byproducts of friendship. So they said, how do we build those in? Now, again, all right, if you, maybe it got a little toxic there for a bit. I'm not defending that part of it. But what are we doing? You know, so when we start meetings, for instance, online, we first go around the room and mm. everyone tells us what was the best thing you did last week in your personal life and what was the best thing that happened last week in work. Like just the things that would happen naturally in an office. And we get to know each other and we laugh and we share things. Now, that's remote working. I'm not against people being in the same room together either. So we do on-sites instead of off-sites where we all come together and we spend a week together talking and doing things and scheming and laughing and eating and working and all the things that we would do. And then we go back wherever we live. And what's important about going back to where we live is the people that I've hired so far are the best people in the world, not the best people that are within 30 miles of the office so they can commute there. I don't care where you live. I want, we, I went around and go, I want this person. I want her. I want him on my team. And I don't care where you live. Fantastic. I just want to connect with you. And so we're running this very large organization now, a hundred percent remotely. Wow. Wow. And I, I imagine some people listening would be thinking, right, where can I sign up for this? Where can I see if there's any <laughs> vacancies? You know, where can I invest? I mean, where would you direct people to? Well, uh, well, you can, you can come directly to me, Scott at jukebox.fan. But you could also, I'm, I am sure as we build out the website, you could click there. You can find me on LinkedIn, on uh, Insta, Facebook. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not hard to find. I'm, I'm really out there in the world. I'm loving every, every bit of this. Um, but I have one last question to ask you now, Scott. It's a very important question. We ask all of our VIP guests on Audio Talks, as you know already from your previous visit. Um, I'd like you to add a track to our Audio Talks title playlist. Hmm. So, I don't want to say it's challenging, but... Because this is a thing. I don't... I, I know you're just asking for a name of a track. <laughs> And not more time, and you just wanted to cut this thing off, no, and this probably gets me. edited out. Honestly. I don't care. No, but All good. I'm, I'm one of the few people in the music industry that is not passionate about music. I'm passionate about the business of music. That's my, how do I help artists? How do I help fans? How do I help record labels and publishers? I'm passionate about the business of music and the music industry. With that said, everyone loves music. But I just want to <laughs> let you know where my real passion lies. Yeah. Um, I would say somebody that's not young, but I discovered recently because during COVID, I started taking boxing lessons in a <gasps> boxing gym. Whoa. And there's a musician there, very mild-mannered, almost, wouldn't almost shy. And he's like, yeah, I'm a musician. And like being totally humble. But it turns out he's, he's actually quite successful. His name's Miles Kane. Wow. Yeah. And, and he's from Liverpool, but lives in London. Uh, so I would choose Come Closer by, by Miles Kane. And if I was allowed to do a second one, yeah, I, I have a, a, one of my closest friends, Liam Howe, was in a band called The Sneaker Pimps. He was Amazing. the founder of The Sneaker Pimps. And he, he has a song, uh, Six Underground. Classic, classic. You go, you might be thinking, I don't know that track. Trust me. Listen, you go, oh yeah, that track. Phenomenal. 
Oh, two great choices there, Scott. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm going to enjoy uh, revisiting both of those a bit later. I'm going to add one to the playlist as well. Uh, as a tribute to your good self, it is the sound of Gil Scott Heron. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution <laughs> will be Classic. live. So comrades, the time of revolution is indeed upon us. And I'm so grateful to Scott and his team at Jukebox for showing us an exciting path ahead. Thank you for joining us, Scott Cohen. Thank you. Special thanks to Nikki, Anastasia and Ingrid at ESNS for hosting us and to Dick Labers and Flores Bus for providing this wonderful recording facilities in the heart of Groningen. Listeners, don't forget to subscribe, comment and share Audio Talks with your friends and family. If you're enjoying the Audio Talks series of podcasts, why not pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your favourite podcasts and leave a nice glowing review. It really does mean a lot and it helps new listeners get to know about the amazing guests like Scott Cohen that we talk to in every single episode. So for more exclusive content, some behind the scenes goodies, and maybe even some competitions, connect with us over on the Instagram. You can find us at Audio Talks Podcast. We'll be back soon for some more revolutionary audio talks. See you next time. 